Hey, here we go. Welcome back to BXB Bronx Baseball Podcast. Keith McPherson and Chris McMonagle joining you today. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. I'm in the Pacific Northwest. I'm running around Seattle. Uh, I'm at the All-Star Game. We booked this podcast with the legend Brian Hoke before I even knew I was going to the All-Star Game. And uh, the Players Alliance, shout out to them for bringing me out here. They put a bunch of stuff on my calendar. And since they paid for my trip in the hotel and everything, I'm like, I think I need to be at all of these events. So I just came back from a panel with uh, Curtis Granderson, Edwin Jackson, and CC Sabathia. But I had to hustle up to try and get here uh, for one of my favorite people in the Yankees universe, Mr. Brian Hoke. What's up, Chris? What's up, Brian? Thanks, Keith. Hey, let me get that. You just dropped something. <laughs> yeah, he did. Wow. Oh yeah, uh, not yeah. flexing at all. Just, I, I, hey. I tell you what, I'm jealous, man. That that's great. Uh, All Star Week is always one of my favorite times. So have a blast out there. I thought you were out like throwing the fish in uh, Pike Place Market. That's where I thought you. Were. <laughs> no, I saw Jeter was doing that though. Um, mm, yeah, Jeter, Ortiz, Alex Rodriguez, and Kevin Burkhart, the new Fox <laughs> crew. They had those guys there yesterday. Uh, totally I, a normal I, thing that I'm sure Derek would do any other day sure. of his life. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm Derek, sure that was funny. not for TV at all. No. no, Derek is a Fox guy now, and it, you know the, the crew of of A Rod, David Ortiz, and Derek Jeter is still yeah. kind of awkward to me. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they don't play into it at all, so it's you know it's, it's okay. <laughs> oh, no, they do. Yeah, but um, I I tell you what, I never thought Derek would be a TV guy. Yeah, and he told me yeah. so many times that he said you would never catch me doing TV. I'll never I'll never want to be a commentator or a broadcaster. Like when I'm done playing, I'm done playing. I want to be an owner. And then I guess he got to do that with the Marlins, and now he said, "All right, I'll go make some easy money and go go to the London series and go to the All Star game. It's not a bad gig." Yeah, I don't money him. talks, money talks, and money can change some things. And um, plus, sure he's got kids. He's got kids. Yeah, he's got, he just had a son. He's got four kids. And Fox <laughs> comes through with a multi-million dollar deal. He's like, all right, I can put in a couple dates. Yeah, I'll pick up the phone. Why not? I'll go to London. I'll go to Seattle. No not bad at all. Two places I've been that I like a lot. And uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying it out here. Uh, like you said, the All-Star Game is great. I call it the baseball festival. There's just so much going on. But um, BXB, the reason that we're here is to talk about the new book, 62 judge is not here with the toe injury but last year we had a magical ride to uh the new al home run record and brian hoke has written a book about it and i'm sure it's fantastic brian if you want to start off telling us um what even made you do it or uh the thought process behind it or how long it took or anything just start filling us in on that yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, the book is called 62, Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees and the Pursuit of Greatness. It comes out tomorrow, uh, published by Atria Books. You can get it at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And uh, while it's a book about last season, it, uh, most of it is actually the connection of these three great Yankees right fielders in Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, and Aaron Judge, all of whom play the same position, same city, same team, uh, different eras, of course, but uh, kind of just 
threading the needle between the history of these guys and what makes 61 and 62 now so uh so important and i got tons of behind the scenes stuff stuff that i didn't uh couldn't report at the time and then now i've gone back and uh kind of reliving it revisiting it uh roger maris jr wrote the forward for the book aaron boone did a preface for it so uh it, it really is the complete story of everything judge did last season it's a biography of judge but also a biography of last season. And I think that any Yankee fan, baseball fan, uh, even if you watched every single Yankee game last year and you lived it, there's stuff in this book that you haven't found out yet, behind-the-scenes stuff that I feel like people are really going to get a kick out of and be excited about. Uh, Brian, when did you get the idea, to, as Keith said, when did you get the idea to do it? Because obviously heading into the season, there's the contract negotiation, uh, the up the deadline up until opening day. Then Brian Cashman comes out and gives the numbers out, and there was controversy there. It, it leads into kind of the whole vibe of opening day, and you knew it was going to be an impact year for Aaron Judge. So did you have an idea that Aaron Judge was going to be a topic for you or a study case for you, and then the home run chase started, or did you get this idea with the home run chase as it was going? I knew it was the biggest year of Aaron Judge's life. Right. Uh, I didn't know that I was going to be doing a book about it, but when he got off to the start, he did. And he actually started a little bit slowly right. after turning down the, the money, and then he caught fire. And uh, I think that when he got to around July, and it was right around this time, actually, you look up and he's around halfway to Roger Maris's record, and you say, geez, he's, he's on an MVP track here. The Yankees are playing out of their minds. They have a 15-and-a-half game lead in the East at one point over Boston. And you'd say – this could be a really special year. If it's not just an MVP year, the Yankees could go all the way this year. I mean, the sky seemed to be the limit. And, of course, we know what happened in the second half with the injuries hitting and then Judge single-handedly brought them to the postseason. And so it turned into something that I didn't even anticipate. And I think that when the Yankees were in Anaheim for home run number 50, that's when it was kind of like, Okay, like you look at how many days are left on the calendar. You look at how he's playing, how the rest of the team's looking. It was kind of like, all right, the story here is Judge. And uh, I mean, everybody is focused on this one number. And the, the fact that you've got uh, national broadcast cutting in on college football to show Aaron Judge, it became this phenomenon that was way beyond Judge being a good baseball player or the Yankees being a good baseball team. This was like a national story that it became. And I feel like everybody was swept up in it. Maybe I, I think part of it is that it's the first true home run chase we've had since the McGuire Sosa bonds years, where we obviously know that those are now different and we just look at them differently because of the steroid use. And so uh, if you ask me who the home run King is, it's still Barry Bonds. And that's what Judge says too at 73. But Roger Maris Jr., the family, uh, the, the entire Maris family, they now believe it's Judge at 62. And, hey, so I think we're all entitled to have that debate. And we go into that in the book as well. And um, I think it just gave us a lot of talking points to jump off of. Judge's chase kind of fuels that conversation in so many different ways. And obviously it's enough to fill a book. Yeah, with, with Judge, uh, how, how much were you able to speak with him during the last like couple weeks where it was 60, 61, 62? I remember getting on WFAN and uh, saying I didn't I didn't care for him to get 62 because I saw the pressure. I saw how, uh, you know, much it was taking a toll on him. And I was always, you know, thinking about October and getting to the World Series in the postseason. But um, how much were you able to talk to Judge during that time and then after about the pressure he felt? And uh, just his day-to-day -day routine, because it was strange going into those games. Those games, 
Uh, I remember being in Yankee Stadium. He hit a double in the fans. I love that. That's in, yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's in the book. That double down a left field line, and you have the crowd that was so quiet too. It was like right. the Masters golf tournament, and yeah, he hits a double. He's running into second base, and you just hear this kind of oh. It's like, right. what are we doing here? Yeah. So that that was definitely a fun part of the book. Um, you know, during those that time there where he gets to 58, 59, 60, 61, Aaron was very good about making time for the media. He knew that he was the story. And that's part of what makes him so good at this is that he knew whether he hit a home run or went 0 for 4, that's what we were going to be writing. That's what the TV shows were going to be talking about. So he was actually uh, very good about that. And I kind of contrasted, I, I did in my mind in real time and also in the book about against what I know of Roger Maris in 1961. We've seen the Billy Crystal movie and that's a little dramatized, but it's pretty close to the truth. Like he actually did have those patches of hair coming out. He had a weird rashes popping up on his body. The stress was really getting to him. And I think that the difference between those two home run chases is that last year it felt like everybody wanted Judge to do it. His teammates did. Even the opponents, when they weren't playing against the Yankees, they they wanted to see him do it. You know, obviously nobody wanted to lose to the Yankees, but if they could win the game and see Judge hit a home run, they were cool with that. I feel like in 61, and I talked to uh, two of the remaining members of that team, in, in Bobby Richardson and Tony Kubek, uh, they kind of lent some light on what it was like to be in the clubhouse at that time and the fact that uh, – Half the world didn't want Roger Maris to break that record. They either wanted Babe Ruth to hold the record forever, or if some Yankee was going to do it, they thought it should be Mickey Mantle. So uh, Maris had all these kind of things pulling against him, and uh, it was it really became a negative, whereas Judge last year, it was kind of a celebration. It was all positive, and when he finally did it, everybody was thrilled about it. Yeah, I, I also wonder about the idea of going through it with a teammate because we just mentioned like it's him and Maris, uh, excuse me, and Mantle going through it together, battling, feeding off each other, and for a right. time, uh, and for a time with Judge, especially the second half, as you mentioned, it's almost like he took on more than the team, and maybe there was a time where Mantle Maris became more than the team. Uh, I wasn't around for it, obviously, but the idea of going through it together, where it was almost like Judge was kind of isolated. While everyone yeah. else was struggling, and we've seen the struggles continue into this year, the team for a year now has, other than Judge, has not hit. So he doesn't have. I've noticed that. He, yeah, have you noticed that? It's funny. I did. Uh, so I he, heard something he, about that. <laughs> so he didn't have a Mickey Mantle. He didn't have someone who, you know, he could either lean on, even if there was an outside the world uh, dichotomy of we want him, we want him. They still were going through it together. Was Judge, yeah. did Judge, did Judge have, did you, did you get the impression, obviously him and Rizzo are close, their dogs are very mm -hmm. close, but like, do you get the, 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 the idea that he had guys he could lean on through this, or is this something other guys couldn't relate to? How did it work for him in the clubhouse with his teammates while the games were going on and it seemed it was more important what he did than what the team did? Well, don't forget, there is somebody in that clubhouse who knows what it's like to hit 59 home runs. That's in right. Season. Yeah. That's Giancarlo Stanton. And so wouldn't that have been great if Stanton could have stayed healthy the whole year? He could have been Mantle. He, or I guess you would flip flop and one would be Maris and one would be Mantle. But anyway, right. the point is, yeah, to have somebody else kind of pushing him and going back and forth, that would have been a fun story to tell, too. Uh, unfortunately, Giancarlo couldn't stay healthy and that, that's not the way it worked out. But he, he was definitely a sounding board at times, especially when they got to 50. Uh, because not many guys have done that. And in the media attention, I, I wouldn't compare it what Stanton had that MVP season in Miami just because it was Miami and it's the Marlins. And it's, you know, I mean, not to denigrate them in any way, but it's just not New York. It's not the Yankees. And so uh, 
the national media, I guess, wasn't coming in. We didn't have ESPN or they didn't have ESPN coming in the way that Judge did every single day and uh, tracking the game and making it kind of bigger than just those nine innings. So, yeah, Rizzo was a sounding board for him. Um, John Carlo was, and, and to an extent, Garrett Cole was too in a lot of ways. But he had so many guys in that room that he could trust and lean on. And I think that really helped him in so many ways. He told me about that too, saying that what the guys did for him was – to just keep it normal. Even though it was kind of like when you have a pitcher working on a no hitter or a perfect game and a perfect example, we just saw it with Domingo Herman. They were talking to him in the dugout. And part of that is the way baseball is now, but nobody was making it weird and being like, Oh, don't talk to judge because he's got to go hit later today. It was kind of very much normal. And I think that's what uh, helped him so many ways because his focus never changed. Uh, me and the media and the rest of the world might have been saying, oh, he's got 52. Let's see if he can get 53 or 54 tonight. But for him, it was always about what can I do to help the Yankees win a game, offense, defense, make a great play, take a walk, that kind of thing. He didn't really get out of his, his game too much. I think he did down by the end, uh, definitely by the Texas series where it was just like, let's get this thing done already. Right. And the, the stress and the pressure got to him at that point. But in the 50s, through the 50s, he was just – Playing great. He was a great player playing uh, great baseball. Yeah. Uh, here's a question for you. How much in this book do you speak on the actual baseballs and the fans that got 60, 61, 62? I feel like, you know, this book is going to be a piece of history that fans can go get and save and have. But uh, I'll always remember the pandemonium in Yankee Stadium mm-hmm. around that. Um, so many casuals showing up thinking that they had a chance at a lottery ticket getting one of these baseballs. Yeah, that's in there too. Yeah, that was a big part of it, and because it's part of the uh, the legacy and the, I guess the legend of '61 too. We we talk still today, 62 years later now, about Sal Durante, the truck driver who caught Roger Maris's home run and was on a date with the uh, the woman who was going to become his wife. That's all part of like Yankee history. So I did want to trace uh, all of those, and so I have it in there in the book. The judge when he got to around 50. Um, Eddie Fastook, who's one of the Yankees uh, security guards, came, went up to Judge and said, hey, I think I'm going to try to start getting all the balls for you. And Judge said, great. And so they were able to get most of the balls back uh, from 50 and up. And I, I talked to the kid who caught 60. He was a New York College, a City College of New York student. His name was Michael Kessler. And he caught 60 against uh, the Pirates that day, the day that Giancarlo hit the Grand Slam. And the kid was great because the Yankees went to him and um, people were talking about, oh, that ball might be worth $10,000. You know, he tied Babe Ruth. And, uh, uh, and he said, no, I just want to meet Aaron Judge. And so they said, great, come on down to the clubhouse and, and like, we'll sign back. You can have a ball, like whatever you want. Like, dude, fine for the ball. Come on down to the clubhouse. Great. And so, and then 61, of course, landed in the bullpen in Toronto. So there was a, a whole kind of drama there where, yeah, some of the players wanted to keep that one. And the Blue Jays caught it and they were like, uh, you know, this ball is worth a lot of money. Do we have to give it back? And Zach Britton told me about going in there and kind of uh, being the peacemaker here and being like, all right, we're giving Judge the ball back. That, that one belongs to Judge. And so they worked that out. He got that one back. And then 62, uh, you know, we we talked a lot about that. I think we got snippets of that story. This is the part of the book that I did a complete 180 on because, um, you know, we all heard about the guy in Texas who caught the ball. His name was Corey Humans, And I think initially people looked up his bio and they said, well, this guy's rich. He works for this investment bank and he must be a millionaire and he just won the 
lottery and this isn't fair and, and this and that. And people were posting a lot of inaccurate information. And so I, I spoke to him at length for this and just to kind of get his side of it. And uh, there was a lot of that that was not true. Um, this guy lived in an apartment he had, with his girlfriend, soon to be his wife. Um, he did work for a big company, but he, he was kind of in the in middle there. He had an impressive business card. That was about it. Um, drove a kind of you know, decent four door sedan. Like this was not a guy in a mansion on the Hill. And uh, he told me one thing that was kind of scary is that as he was leaving the ballpark that night, his address was making the rounds online and they were, there's starting to be all these sketchy people showing up at his apartment complex. And he didn't know uh, if they were going to try and jump him for the ball. And he's thinking to himself, he's like, I don't own a gun. I don't have a knife. Like, what do I do? How do I defend myself and my, uh, my fiance here? And so they actually wound up leaving their apartment for 10 days and they didn't go home and they put it in the bank in a safe deposit box because, I mean, what do you do in that situation? Like your life has just completely changed and suddenly you don't know who are the good guys or who the bad guys are and if they're out to get you. So I completely did a 180 on that. I felt like there was way more to that story than I, I knew yeah. in real time. And yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, that that is crazy. It's, uh, unbelievable. But um, I want to ask you, is there a moment uh, – um, one of the home runs that we might deem, you know, innocuous or not that big a home run uh, where there's a nice surrounding story or, or a special moment for you that would be lost on us or home run we might not even remember. Like we talk about. Well, I'll tell you. Yeah, I tell you, it happened earlier in the year. It was the, in Toronto where uh, the Blue Jays fan caught the ball and then gave it to the young Yankee fan and the nine-year-old boy and he right, starts right, crying. Right. And there was a really emotional moment uh, early in the home run chase, and that's kind of it became a human interest thing at, at that point that that moment went viral um because yeah. yeah and i have the whole story in there and and quotes from from them and i, t- I spoke to the, the nine-year-old boy that day in toronto and um then the judge brought them back for batting practice the next day and uh that was a cool story and i i kind of outlined that whole thing I, and when i went around the clubhouse actually this spring training we were finishing up the book and i had about five more days left until like it was the drop dead deadline so i was just going to talk to everybody I possibly could to not leave anything on the table. And so I went around the room and I asked everybody what their favorite home run was. And they kept coming back over and over. So many guys said the home run off Jordan Romano to beat the Blue Jays early in the year. It was a walk-off. And it's kind of funny because in the, in the blur that was 62 home runs, I'd almost forgotten about that one. And they, the players, really, uh, really, really loved that one. And that was kind of the one where they said something special is going to happen this year. And Higashioka, Kyle, and Kyle told me, and we hate, uh, we hate the Blue Jays. So you know, so that was always a big one too. And I feel like we've seen that this year too, where yeah. it's pretty chippy on both sides when, when yeah. they play Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, I had to leave the stadium that night to get the WFA in. That was one I regretted. Uh, I had to leave early. <laughs> Listen to that one on the radio, and um, I think he walked us off against the Royals and hit a homer uh, after that. And that mm-hmm. game, I was literally in the Great Hall, one foot in the door, one foot out, watching all the Because <laughs> after you miss one, it's like you know you right. had that feeling, like you like you were just saying, it was historic, and you knew something mm-hmm. special was happening with Judge. 